Well, Father, we come before you just honored that you have spoken to us millennia ago through the words of Jesus recorded by Luke in Scripture. And Father, it's no accident that we are covering this passage at this moment with these uh, brothers and sisters in the congregation. I pray that your spirit will be at work to enliven the word. I pray that you will help us to absorb it and have great faith in it, that we will seek to be filled with the word, driven by a deep, profound belief in your son. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last week I wasn't here. I was out of town, actually preaching at my children's church, my second favorite church, which is Redemption Hill Church in Lawrence, Kansas, where two of my kids go to church. And before that, I went to the ACBC National Conference. Now, if you don't know about ACBC, it's not a rock band. It's the uh, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. And the emphasis is on biblical. Uh, Their stated purpose is to provide biblical solutions for the problems people face, right? Biblical uh, solutions. And this stands in contrast to uh, secular therapy, right? When people go to therapy, they are seeking relief. According to the National Institute of Health, the goal of therapy is to gain relief from symptoms, maintain or improve daily functioning, and improve the quality of life, right? So the goal is to relieve suffering. In therapy, it's usually mental suffering, If you struggle from very high levels of anxiety and it reaches a point where you have a hard time holding a job or keeping your marriage together, you you go to therapy and you might receive some medication, some techniques, or some talk therapy to kind of help you function and deal with life. And that's a good thing, right? It's, It's compassionate to relieve suffering, but sometimes even the well meaning Um, Desire to relieve suffering can inflict greater suffering. We are in the midst of of an opioid epidemic, and part of the reason why was there's a public relations campaign that pain is the fifth vital sign. Therefore, if you have pain, we need to do something about it. Opioids were prescribed at a record rate, and here we are, right? Just finding relief is not necessarily the best thing to do on all occasions. And what's interesting is when Jesus came to this earth, he had a ministry of relief, right? He gave relief to many people. Uh, He would relieve healing, relieve blindness, deafness, muteness, and demon possession. And when you think about it, I mean, demon possession, that's kind of a big deal. Like, here's a question for you. I want you to answer me honestly. Would you rather be paralyzed, blind, sick, or demon-possessed? How many are on team paralysis? <laughs> team blindness? Sickness? Okay, I'm not going to ask demon possession because I don't want to know who you are. <laughs> but who wants to have a malevolent spirit inhabiting your body, controlling your every move and tormenting you, right? I mean, that was a big deal. And, and I think it's Jesus' favorite miracle because of what it represents. It's, it's relief, it's liberation. How, however, even a miracle that gives you that kind of relief is, is incomplete without subsequent belief. And that's the point that Jesus is making in Luke eleven twenty four 24-28. I'll read it to you. 
When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is a passage where Jesus teaches about the danger of, belief, or of relief without belief. Now, in the larger context, right, Jesus is in a confrontation mode with the Pharisees who cannot deny that Jesus has the power to cast out demons. A mute man is able to speak. Clearly, this guy has supernatural power. We can't deny the miracle, but we can deny the source. This is a man who's not doing miracles by the power of God, but by the power of Beelzebul. He is in league with the devil. The devil delegates power to Jesus, and he's able to cast out demons by demonic influence. And Jesus counters that by saying, Satan's many things, but he's not an idiot. A house divided cannot stand. Then he makes it a point that the stronger man can take out the strong man, and that's what he came to do. Now, in the audience at this time, you have some people who believe that he, he is doing all these things by the power of the devil. Then you have other people who are kind of on the fence or waiting for more signs. There are the unpersuaded. There are the people who may have seen the healing power or experienced the healing power, but aren't persuaded to the right belief in Jesus. And so Jesus gives them a warning. You see, this is a passage where Jesus addresses those who are drawn to what I call crisis Christianity. Do you know what that is? They're the people who become Christians in a crisis. The man receives, you know, comes home to an empty house and doesn't find his wife, doesn't find his children, but he does find a Dear John letter on the table. He reads it. He learns that his wife is tired of his behavior. His addiction to pornography has stolen away every ounce of intimacy in their marriage. The family feels oppressed by his anger. And so what does he do? He comes to church. He meets with the pastor. He might even get baptized. He goes to every single Bible study to prove that he's a changed man. And eventually, his wife believes it, moves back into the home with the family, and then he stops going to the Bible study. Then he stops going to church. He got what he wanted, right? The crisis was averted, but it was not followed up by robust belief and transformation. Many people were touched by Jesus' healing ministry. Jesus relieved their suffering on many levels. And yet for the tens of thousands of people who were healed, who had their crisis averted, who found relief, it was not matched by the belief that Jesus came to secure. 
So this is what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the danger of relief without belief and then the necessity of the right belief. And what we're going to see that it's not enough to just bring relief to people, right? The goal of the church, the goal of ministry is to bring belief to people. So look at the danger of relief without belief, starting in verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and finding none of it, it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is called the parable of the empty soul. Now, a parable is a, is a true-to-life situation that Jesus uses to illustrate uh, a theological point, usually about the kingdom. Now, this is a true-to-life situation which has a lot of implications for demonology and can a Christian be possessed by a demon? Well, the answer is no. And I proved that in other sermons, but I don't want to focus on that here. I want to talk about the, the larger point that he's trying to make. Now, in this parable, you have a demon that leaves his host. We can assume, given the context, Jesus just exercised a demon out of a mute man, that this demon had been cast out of the host. It then goes and travels through the waterless places, the desert land, which was regarded as the home of the demons, and, and doesn't find any rest. And then he thinks to himself, you know what, maybe the exorcist is no longer there. I wonder if I can go back to my old home. And so he travels and he finds his old host. And not only is the old host unoccupied, the house is clean, swept in order. This is what you call a turnkey host, right? Or a turnkey home. He thinks to himself, well, Maybe he met some other demons out looking for the same place and said, hey, do you need a roommate? And he brings seven other malevolent demons, those who are nastier than himself, and they inhabit this poor host. And the last state is worse than the first. So what does this mean? Well, there's a couple of implications to it. I think there's a national and a personal implication to it. Now, later on in verse 29, Jesus confronts this evil generation. Now, if you know about the history of Israel, what was their number one sin? What did they do that angered God more than anything else? They would worship idols, right? Instead of going to Yahweh, the Lord of the universe, asking for rain from heaven, they would sacrifice to Baal, the sky god, or to grow their herds, they'd sacrifice to Asherah. And they did this over and over and over and over again until God said, I had it. He brought in a foreign army, the Babylonians, who took them, disciplined them, and then after 70 years, they were placed back in the promised land. And you know what's really interesting is post the exile, Israel never worshipped idols again. You ever notice like in the, in the New Testament, like idol worship wasn't a Jewish thing. They're very serious about not worshiping idols. That sin is done away with. So you think they're great, right? They got rid of the major sin. But there still is an empty soul. It is unoccupied. 
and God tabernacles among them in Jesus Christ, right? He is the missing piece, the missing ingredient who will refill that body with his rule. And yet they reject him for self-righteousness. And the last state is worse than the first, right? Self-righteousness is even worse, right? When I, when I share the gospel with somebody who's not self-righteous, I can just share the gospel. When I share the gospel with somebody who is self-righteous, I have to get them unsaved before I get them saved. It's a two-step process. So on a national level, that's what's going on, but there's also a personal level. Demon possession is real. It actually happened. Some man goes to Jesus. The demon is cast out. They immediately have relief, but what do they do after that point? Later on, we're going to learn about the, the ten lepers in a future sermon. Right? They're all healed of their leprosy. They are given relief, but only one comes back to say thank you. You see, there is a sense where it is possible to have relief. Where Jesus himself can give you relief. You can rejoice that the curse has been lifted, that the suffering has abated. But if it is not complemented and fortified by the right belief, the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, how does that work out? Now, for you older people among us, and I count myself as older now, right? I'm almost 50. I still got, I'm 48. I'm not 49, but I'm almost 50. Lance Armstrong was the feel-good story, right, of the late 90s. If you know his story, he was a professional bicycler, and in 1996, he discovered that he had stage 3 testicular cancer, and it spread to his lungs, his brain, his abdomen. I mean, it was all over. The doctors did not think he would survive. But he fought cancer, and he won. And not only did he beat cancer, he went on to win the Tour de France seven consecutive times, right? It's a feel-good story. And he was asked in an interview how his belief in God helped him to beat cancer. And this is what he said. Everyone should believe in something. And I believe in surgery, chemotherapy, and my doctors. See, he's an atheist. He's an atheist. The greatest crisis of his life happened. And often, like, when you are witnessing for someone, you know, praying for someone that you're witnessing to, okay, don't you often just hope in your heart that there's some sort of crisis? This is the moment. I know it. God's going to reach him with this suffering. And then they come out to the other end, somebody like Lance Armstrong, and he says, I now have greater faith in myself. I know now that I'm the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. It's the exact opposite of Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. See, he never understood that it was actually God's kindness that healed him of his affliction. And because of his rejection, he hardened his heart. He went deeper into atheism. You see, when, when we go through suffering, 
and it is relieved, naturally there is some reflection as to how did that happen. Right? When Jesus walked the earth and, and he healed the blind, when he helped the lame to walk, when he liberated the captives and set them free, he wasn't as interested in relieving the suffering as the message that relieving the suffering gave. And that is, he is the one who came to set the prisoners free. He is the fulfillment of the expectation that there will come a king who will bring a kingdom that will be free from all suffering. The purpose of all of the relief was to point to him. Even creation right now calls out, right? There is a message in suffering. Matthew, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 19 for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, right? We, there's an eager longing. We know that there is something wrong. For, we, we need something to be made right. And in 8.23 of Romans, it says, And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We all know that on that great day, when we see Jesus suffering will be over for eternity, right? And not only, when Jesus, not only will Jesus relieve our suffering, for the people of God, all suffering will cease. Sin will be past tense. Suffering will be past tense. Cancer will be past tense. Mental anguish will be past tense. All of it will be done. Jesus will rid the world of all suffering. And sometimes... God in his kindness gives us a taste of that kind of relief. We learn in the scriptures that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Right? Isn't rain relieving? I know in drought conditions, a good three-inch soaker is a relief. Right? God gives relief to the just and the unjust. And every time somebody is healed, whenever suffering abates is actually an invitation to give credit to the person who did it ultimately you look at a, a well-meaning ministry like alcoholics anonymous okay have they've done a lot of good and they've relieved a lot of suffering and they liberated a lot of people from addiction and they actually do it through the 12-step process which borrows heavily from scripture but they make one adjustment right they give all credit to God as you understand him. So it is possible to go through that process, let's say a Muslim to go through that process, to be liberated from alcoholism and addiction and give glory to Allah. And his faith is strengthened in who? Allah. Right? False religions, if you, if you go through suffering and the crisis is relieved and you're in a false religion, you give greater credit to your false religion. If you have no religion, you give greater credit to who? Yourself. So what does Jesus want? He wants his people to give glory to him. The problem with the parable of the empty soul is it's not filled with truth. And this becomes more pronounced when we look at the necessity of the right belief. Okay, look at verse 27. Jesus has just been accused of being in league with the devil. 
Jesus turns around and insinuates that they're in league with the devil. This is a very tense situation. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, some commentators speculate that this woman is trying to break the tension. Growing up, whenever there was growing tension in my family, my mom would start singing very loudly, I love Paris. True story. I can't listen to that song. Not that I do listen to that song, but without thinking what's going on here and what she's trying to divert our eyes from, right? But whatever the reason, she does make a true statement. She said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Now, that is a true statement. How do we know? Elizabeth tells Mary in Luke 142, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. If you remember our journey through Ruth, one of the major themes was that in that day and age, the closest relationship a woman could enjoy was the one that she would enjoy with her son. Right? Sons were everything to them. And as we got their, their warmth, they got their affection. And to have an honorable son was the crown upon the mother. Like you guys know who Donna Kelsey is, right? We all know Donna Kelsey. Taylor Swift's best friend, apparently. But we know Donna Kelsey because of her two Hall of Fame football-playing sons, right? The sons were a glory to their mother. In the same way, this woman tells Jesus, your mother is lucky to have you, Jesus. What a blessed woman. Now, this is an indirect way of her praising Jesus, right? It's really a sweet sentiment. Your mother is lucky to have you. You are magnificent. What a son. I wish my son was like you. A lot of mothers say that, right? But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That praise is, is sweet. But you know what? The one who's really blessed is the one who hears the word of God and keeps it, right? This is a common theme in Jesus' teaching. The ones who are truly blessed are the ones who keep the word of God. At the end of the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you, right? You're praising me, that's good, but you're not doing what I say. And then he goes on to teach in verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. Those who are blessed are the ones who build their house on whose teaching? Jesus' teaching. 
my teaching in the words of Jesus, right? See, the Word of God is not something that we read for spiritual exercises. It's not something we read for intellectual curiosity. These are actually commands from God to instruct us on how to live. It's not enough just to hear the Word, right? You do the Word. And implicit in this is an understanding of the authority of Jesus. Right? Jesus is the Christ. And Christ is not just his last name, it's a title. It's the Greek translation of the Messiah, which means the anointed one. The one who is anointed to be the successor of David. He is the king. And one thing with the king is they have absolute authority over their subjects. And how do they exercise their authority? They make decrees. And if you are a subject of the king and you hear the decree of a king, you obey the decree because you respect the authority of the king. So when we look at, at scripture here, right? Scripture is the word of God. It is how our king communicates to us. And Jesus says, blessed is everyone who hears these words and obey it. Blessed are you if you hear the words, my teaching, and obey it. See, ultimately what he wants is not just relief, but the right belief. A belief that drives you to the authority of his word. Now, I know of a church that was given large amounts of food by a charitable foundation. And they were to take this food and distribute it to the needy neighbors. And they did. Right? They were offering relief. And I actually got a, looked at some of the food that they were distributing, including a jar of peanut butter. And when I looked at this jar of peanut butter, it said, this is a gift to you from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So they're giving relief. But what belief is it teaching? Does that make sense? Yeah, we are people who are searching for meaning. When Jesus offered relief, is to create a bigger question in the mind of the recipient of who is this person who gave me relief? And the correct answer is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the ruler of all nations, the Lord of the universe. Any relief that we offer, right, ultimately is to steer us towards that end, the belief in a high view of Jesus. And if you have a belief in the high view of Jesus, you have belief in the high view of his word because Jesus communicates to us through scripture. So with that said, I want to talk about some further dangers of offering Relief without belief. This could be done in a charitable context, right? Where you are seeking to meet people's needs and relieve suffering. Uh, it could be in a therapeutic context. But what I'm going to contend is whenever we offer relief, it needs to be framed with a drive and a desire to point people to a high view of Jesus Christ in whatever context. So here are the dangers of offering relief without belief. One, offering relief without belief diminishes our greatest need. 
If you were to sit down and, and talk to a friend of yours who is grieving the loss of their loved one, or perhaps you're talking to another friend of yours who is experiencing an overwhelming sense of anxiety, right? What is their greatest need? Okay, there's minor needs, there's major needs, but what is their greatest need? Well, Romans 3.23 kind of shapes this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, followed by Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Hunger, arthritis, cancer, all of that stuff, it's all painful, right? But what, is, what will be the greatest pain, right? All the pain concentrated into one moment is like one moment in hell, right? What is the greatest need of anyone? It's forgiveness. It's forgiveness. And God offers forgiveness, but God shows his love for us, and while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Now, a compassionate heart will want to relieve all suffering, right? But an impassion, a compassionate heart that's informed by Scripture will want to relieve the greatest suffering. Right? I'm not against trying to comfort the grieving, weeping with those who weep, or anything like that. But ultimately, it has to be framed by the greatest need, which is the gospel. The greatest need is the gospel. Secondly, relief without belief can diminish sanctification, right? Once you believe in the gospel, once you are a Christian, there is still work to be done, right? Because not only are you liberated from the power of sin and the consequences of sin and the power of death and the consequence of death, which is hell, right? You're not only liberated from that, you're liberated by sin's bondage over you, right? Sin impacts every area of our life. It impacts relationships. It impacts how we see ourselves. It impacts our temptations, how we relate to God. Uh, some of us are impacted by just the weight of sin as far as somebody else's sin, right? It's pervasive. So how do you break the bondage? Well, a lot of times when I do counseling, let's say I do marriage counseling, I, I come, the couple comes into my office and they're sitting on the couch. This is kind of the couch test and they are angled this way, right? I'm forcing it on the love seat, which is ironically named at this moment. And they're both on the love seat, but they're trying to be as far apart as possible. And then over a period of time, right, you know, the body language begins to shift and change, the relationship thaws, and they're now on civil terms, and they don't hate each other anymore. Great. Crisis averted. I'll stop the counseling. Is that what I should do? I'm seeing people go, no, yes. Well, the answer is no, right? The work's not done. The work's not done because the goal is not to just bring relief, right? It's to conform them to the image of Christ. It's to help them to apply Ephesians 5, 31-32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The saying is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. I want their love to as closely match the love of Christ for the church and to understand that and change their paradigm for marriage, right? The goal is not just to give them relief, but enough relief 
that I can impart the belief to them and strengthen that. Another example, a person comes in, they are partying on the weekends, they're clearly alcoholics. The Bible says, and do not get drunk with wine. So if I can just stop them from getting drunk with wine, they'll be fine, right? It says, do not get drunk with wine. This is uh, Ephesians 5.18. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Right? We don't just want an empty soul. We want them to be filled with the Spirit. And what does that look like? Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Notice the content. Singing, making melody in your heart with the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to the God, our Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The goal is not just to make people sober. Ultimately, the goal when we minister to people is to bring them relief, but to point them to a greater reality. The goal, our goal, is Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The goal is to point people to Christ, to minister to them, to help them understand how to be like Christ. And the Bible is actually very instructive in this. Not only does it present a, a high view of Christ, talking about his beauty and his glories, I think Ephesians is a great example of that, right? The first three chapters prevent, present a high view of Christ, a high view of salvation. But when he turns the corner in chapter 4, he talks very specifically about how you are to act like Christ, to be like Christ, and the word is to put on Christ. In Ephesians 4.22, Paul says, he's talking about you know, being a new creation, and he says this, that your goal is to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And the idea is you have two teams, right? You have Team Adam, which is how we lived our lives all the way until the moment of salvation. And then you have Team Christ. And what happened was when we converted, we went from Team Adam to Team Christ. We were traded from the 49ers to the Chiefs, right? Just trolling you, man. Right? You have a new uniform, a new playbook, a new coach. And changing allegiances, it does take some time, right? And so how do we change allegiances? Well, one, you've been equipped with the Holy Spirit and you have a new regenerate heart. That helps. But then there is this mental war and these mental disciplines. And as you keep on reading through 25 through 32, uh, Paul tells you how to take off Team Adam and put on Team Christ, right? You put away falsehood and you speak the truth you do you do use anger but not sinful anger you do not steal but you work and give to those who are in need you do not let corrupt talk come out of your mouth but only what is helpful for building up those with the grace given to you you don't be vicious but you edify with action notice the pattern you put off and then you put on you see the goal to make people like christ is not just to bring them relief and bring them out of a crisis level but to show them how you can be like Christ in this situation. Now, sometimes when you have somebody become like Christ, or anytime you, let's say, share the gospel with someone, you can inflict pain. 
The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend for good reason. There's many times when somebody tells you what you don't want to hear and it hurts. See, if the goal is just all relief, you are short-circuiting a greater work that the Lord may may be doing in you. See, relief without belief can also diminish your perseverance. Right? Heaven is going to be a world without suffering. Suffering is not good on any level, but it can be used for good. And we see an example of this in James chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. These are a persecuted people. They would never choose persecution. But God is using these terrible circumstances to accomplish joy. But for it to do so, verse 4 says, and let steadfastness have its full effect. To learn this joy, to learn this patience, right? You, you just don't learn patience by, by telling God, you know, God, I have suffered for 10 minutes. I got the message. I've learned patience now. All right, wouldn't that be nice? It's been 10 hours, Lord. I'm good. I got it. The point of it is pushing you beyond the point where you can take it. That is how he grows us. And it is a painful process. And God doesn't like it either, but it is necessary. And, and what James is saying is you've got to let this take its full effect. It means don't take a shortcut. Now, how do people shortcut trials? You're in a relationship, it could be a friendship, family relationship, marriage relationship, and it's just hard. So you cut them off and you don't have to deal with it anymore. No more persevering through that trial. Maybe there is a temptation to sin. It's really hard to stay away from this area of temptation. Well, I'll just indulge it. Now I don't feel the pain of temptation anymore. Or life is really difficult. I can't endure it anymore. I'll just escape it. Could be through substance abuse. Could be through online entertainment. Could be through suicide. Right? That's a shortcut. When God has you in a trial, you stay in it, honoring the Lord, trusting that he is doing something, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The idea is maturity. God is growing you up. Have you guys ever heard the term snowplow parent? You have helicopter parents who like kind of hover over their kids all the time. The snowplow parent is someone who uses a snowplow to obliterate any obstacle that might hurt their children. Now, what happens to the children of snowplow parents? They have to go to adulting courses. They don't know how to deal with adversity. They don't know how to deal with difficulty. See, God is a good parent where he's using trials to help you grow up and help you to mature. And sometimes when you are counseling people or helping people, you know, you you do whatever you can to try to relieve suffering, right? You send them to the doctor, you try to do these other things. But sometimes that's just where you are. Clearly, God's plan is for you to, to suffer, 
the great thing about the Bible and a high view of Jesus Christ is you could say, God is using this for your good. God is doing a greater work in you. You can point them to the promises of Scripture and they can fight sweet comfort knowing that in the end it'll be worth it and knowing that in the end they're going to be prepared for a greater weight of glory, right? That you may be complete, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And fourthly, seeking relief without belief diminishes Christ's lordship. When the crisis Christian comes to to church seeking immediate relief and finds it then leaves the church as fast as they came they're kind of like a woman who marries a man for money not for love right what they are doing is they are using christ to get the relief they want so that they can live the way that they want to live see jesus pushes back on this sentiment he he knows that there are there is a large swath of people in israel who are using him to get relief but they have no intention of really believing in him John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. There's speculation that just as, as Moses brought bread into the wilderness, so the Son of Man will. Maybe this guy is the Messiah. And then he starts saying strange things like you need to drink my blood and, and eat my flesh, pointing to his suffering. And, and they're all thinking, well, this may not be the Messiah that we had in mind. And the whole time they're trying to maybe get another miracle. Can he feed us again just so we can be sure you're the Messiah? But he doesn't do that. And in the end, they end up walking away. He says in, in John 6, 58 through 60, this is a bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And many of his disciples heard it and they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? He offers them better bread and they say, don't, we don't want it. We want the bread that feeds us now. We want the water that can quench our thirst right now. We don't want this future stuff. And they went away in unbelief because they were unwilling to see the world through the eyes of Jesus that this world is not all that there is. So all this to say, it is good to help people. It's the compassionate thing to help people. But as we help people, no matter how we do it, as we seek to relieve suffering, the goal is, is to point them to a high view of Jesus Christ. So that when they make it through this trial, when they get the relief, on the other end, they will say, glory be to me, glory be to Allah, but glory be to Christ. That is the heart of helping people. And how do we help people and how do we point people to Christ? By helping them hear and obey the word of God. Now some of you, you know that there's something wrong with you. And you're looking for some help. And there's lots of places to find help. But let me challenge you with this. As you are seeking help in whatever venue you may find it, are you seeking help from Scripture, from God's people and God's truth? Are you positioning yourself so that at the end of it, 
when you find that blessed relief, should it happen in this time, right? And sometimes it doesn't always happen right away. But are you positioning yourself so that when you find it, you will give glory to God? And that when you receive the help, it will solidify a greater belief in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are thankful for the clarity of your teaching and the sufficiency of your word. And I pray that all of us will seek solutions that will point us to you, that will strengthen our faith in you, that will firm up our confidence in you. And I pray for anyone even now who may be distressed and and seeking help, that they will look to you to provide it and that you will guide them to people who will gladly dispense with that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.